So we're going to turn to John chapter 8 today, and we're going to do the first half of the chapter, and yeah, verses 1 to 32, hopefully. So last week we talked about Jesus giving his very public declaration about the giving of the Holy Spirit upon those who believe, and that was fulfilled at Pentecost. And what we're reading now in chapter 8 is a direct continuation. So verse 1 is basically the night of the last great day of the Feast of Tabernacles, where everyone packed up their booths and started home to their towns and cities. Or maybe if they're a long way away, they would have head off the next day. Yeah, I just pray then we'll start reading John chapter 8. Father, thank you for all this chapter where we read about you being the light of the world and the Pharisees not understanding who the Father is and demonstrating that they don't have a relationship with the Father. And Jesus says that if you abide in the truth, the truth will set you free. Lord, we want to be free. Help us to learn about that too, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 1, John chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery, in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from, and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, 
for his hour had not yet come. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Because he says, Where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Then they said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me, The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So, awesome passage to go through today. Let's jump into verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So the last great day, the Feast of Tabernacles, they're down there with their booths and celebrating and the candles and the, the water libation, like the offering the water and, and all those things. And it's all finished. And they all go home. But where does Jesus go? Well, he goes to a garden and he's probably camping out in the garden. And uh, it appears that Jesus often went there to pray because that's where Judas found him, you know, six months' time. Where? praying in the garden. Verse 2. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So this is the day after the last and great day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus is back in the temple. Remember they're trying to kill him, threatening him, and uh, making life difficult for him. But he he's faithful to keep doing what God has asked him to do, the Father has asked him to do. He's ready to meet with anyone who might seek him. He says in Proverbs 8.17, I love them that love me, and those who seek me early shall find me. Uh, Verse 3, Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. So, if you're doing that particular thing, then you kind of imagine what she would or wouldn't be wearing. And I kind of imagine that this would be quite a spectacular event in a bad sense of the word, trying to disrupt Jesus as he's teaching the people in the temple. So we don't know uh, exactly how she was dressed, but it was um, in the very act. So, and they said to Jesus, Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. Now, Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22 both declare adultery to be a capital offense. That is, you, you are stoned. You, you're killed by people throwing stones at you. 
But due to the severity of the sentence, death, there were safeguards to protect the innocent. So there could be no doubt about any of the details. The evidence had to be conclusive and unmistakable. In fact, there had to be a number of witnesses, at least two, to the actual act of immorality. And the stories had to collaborate perfectly. Now, one story from history was that a couple was set free. They were actually guilty, but they were set free because the witnesses couldn't name the tree under which it took place. We saw them, but we don't know which tree it happened under, so they got let off. So it had to be exact. And uh, Josephus tells us that adultery would be punished on the average of only once every seven years because it was so difficult to convict the adulterer. And then the the Pharisees say to Jesus in the second part of verse 5, But what do you say? So they're saying, Moses said this, what do you say? Are you going to go against scripture? This is a trap. They're trying to find some way of causing him to stumble. So there's two ways where they're trying to trap Jesus here. Firstly, if Jesus said stone her, he's going to jeopardize his position, his relationship with most of the people he hangs around with because he's known as a friend of sinners. Prostitutes, publicans, tax collectors and street people would no longer feel comfortable around him because, oh, is he going to cause us to be stoned? Because he hung around prostitutes and stuff like that. He witnessed to them. He ministered to them. On the other hand, if he said, let her go, he would be dishonoring the words that he wrote back in the Old Testament. So what's he going to do? And... um because it says in Matthew 5.17 that he's going to come to fulfill the law. So here's another way of looking at it, uh, another way the trap is set. If Jesus says, let her go, then he breaks the Mosaic law, but if he says, execute her for the crime of adultery, then he's going to break the Roman law, because they have taken away the right of the Jewish people to execute capital punishment. So, this they said, verse 6, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. Now, obviously, they're not interested in justice, because if they were interested in justice, they would have brought the guy along with them. And maybe one of them was the man. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. Now, it's interesting, because they clearly see the sin in others, but they're completely blind to the sin in themselves. This is what the picture I see here. And we'll come back to that point later. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So these guys are badgering him. Because in verse 7 it says, so when they continued asking him, come on Jesus, come on, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? They're pressuring him. And what does he do? He's like he didn't hear. He's just, I wonder what's on the ground down here. And he starts doodling in the ground. Now I'd love to know what he wrote, but he doesn't give us any indication. So when in verse 7, when they continued asking him, he raised himself up. In defense of the woman, the Rock of Ages stood up to the men who held rocks in their hands. I imagine they would have come with rocks. That's just my imagination there. And he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Because if the witnesses had to throw the first stones, you see. And then what did he do? He stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. So 
I'm really, really curious to know what Jesus wrote in the sand, in the dust in the, on the ground there, to cause these people, these religious leaders, to feel convicted in themselves and to walk out. So one day we'll know, hopefully. Um, and Jesus, verse 9, the second part, And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And so all the religious leaders who are in on this trap have gone away, and there's no one to condemn her anymore. And what does Jesus call her? Does he call her sinner? He said to her, sinner, where are you? those accusers of yours? Is that right? No, he says woman. It's the same word that he calls his mother in John chapter 2 verse 4. Uh, Goon, G-U-N-E, is a Greek. So it's um, yeah, the same kind of uh, respect as he gave his own mother. So he's treating this woman with a lot of respect. He didn't call her harlot or anything, any other derogatory name. And she says in verse 11, No one, Lord. The scribes and the Pharisees called Jesus Master or Rabbi. The woman called him Lord. Now we read Psalm 109. One of the last verses was that Jesus will stand up for us and we will not be condemned. And here we are, Jesus standing up for her, and she's not condemned. It's a picture of Jesus interceding for her as the high priest. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Now, according to the law, he couldn't because there's no witnesses, therefore she can't be condemned. She can't be held guilty because you need two witnesses, according to Deuteronomy 19.15. But I just want to look at this statement, Neither do I condemn you. I think it's important. And I've got three thoughts here. So, firstly, Jesus did not come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world for salvation. Judgment will start at the second coming with the sheep and goat judgment and finish at the great white throne judgment. And here's a verse I'm going to read to you. It's John chapter 12, verses 47 to 48. It says, And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him, the word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. So at the moment, Jesus is presenting them with um, the opportunity to be forgiven and saved, born again. What they do with that is up to them. Secondly, we need to be careful not to condemn others. We can be like the Pharisees sometimes. We can have a hard heart. The Pharisees tried to condemn the woman they brought to Jesus. But we, as fellow lawbreakers, have no right to cast any stones at anybody because we're not innocent either. Because we are just like the person we are condemning. We're saying that person has broken God's law, you need to be condemned. Well, I'm also guilty of breaking God's law and therefore I can't condemn someone. I can't say to them, you deserve to, and finish a sentence. You know, We can't do that because we're just as guilty. But Jesus, he can judge with righteous judgment and that gives him the right to judge he never sinned so he has the right to cast the first stone and he is also a witness he sees everything so 
James refers to this in James chapter 4, verse 12. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge one another? That's what James says. There's one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge one another? You're not perfect. And this is where our humility should be evident or revealed to those around us. When we remember that we were dead in sin before we were saved, absolutely and positively guilty and deserving of hell, but because of God's great kindness and mercy toward us, we were saved by grace and not because we deserved it. Now, if you'd like to look up Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, that's a fantastic verse, and this shows what our attitude to people should be. We should have our Father's heart towards people. So Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. Once we, too, were foolish and disobedient. We were misled or deceived and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. But, and this is a big word, but, when God our Saviour revealed his kindness and love, he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, that is undeserved favor, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. So if this is God's attitude towards sinners, he wants them to be saved, then our attitude towards sinners should be the same. Because if not for God's attitude toward us when we were sinners, then we would not be saved. So what does it mean to condemn? I mentioned it before, but you deserve to suffer because of what you did. We're putting a judgment on them that they should suffer something because of what they did. That's the judgment I'm talking about, the, con- the judgment of condemnation. The law condemns us. It says, you're guilty, you deserve to go to hell, to suffer for eternity because you've broken God's moral law. And again, just to remind us, why don't we have the right to condemn someone? To place ourselves in the place of judge? Well, Jesus said, he who is without sin casts the first stone. So I can't condemn anyone if I am just as guilty, if I've broken the same moral law. However, and people get confused here, however, this does not mean that we can't and shouldn't judge or discern whether an action or attitude is right or wrong. So God expects us to be discerning but not judgmental. For example, you wouldn't allow a previously convicted child molester to babysit your two-year-old for the weekend. That would be not very discerning. Okay, You want to be discerning. You want to judge what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad. But neither would you be saying to them, you're a convicted child molester, you deserve to go to hell. That's been condemning. Okay, In, Instead, we should be sharing the gospel with that person. So the, the last point about um, Christ's statement, neither do I condemn you, is that in Christ, there is no condemnation. We are free from guilt and condemnation. So Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We are free from condemnation. Our case, the case against us, has been dismissed 
because someone else paid our sin debt in full and we can walk out of the courtroom fully justified and free. And then he says to him, verse 11, go and sin no more. Now, you can, depending on your uh, mindset and your understanding of God, you'll hear this in one of two ways. The first way is, go and sin no more. As a threat, you better not go and do that again. And that's for people who are in the realm of legalism where they're thinking, you know, God's a big... um, judge and he's going to belt everyone who does anything wrong and I better be good. But then we could also hear this as go and sin no more as a promise that you have been now given the power to live a righteous life, a life which is free from the power of sin. So this is for us as Christians, we have been given the power to live a life that pleases God. We no longer have to live a life where we're slaves to sin. So he's basically saying, to paraphrase, go your way, free to sin no more. So God's commands are always his promises. He will never give us a command without also giving us the desire and the power to do it. So this is a beautiful picture of Christ's mission. Not only does he want to save us from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. So his first coming is an invitation to be free from the penalty and the power of sin. Then in verse 12, then Jesus spoke to them again. So, we don't see anything here about Jesus being uptight or upset. He's just had this really rude interruption to his message that he's giving, his the, the words that he's speaking to the crowds here. And it says, Jesus, then Jesus spoke to them again. So this is back to the crowds. All the religious leaders have walked off. He's finished talking to the woman. Now he turns his attention back to the crowds. And he uses this interruption as an illustration. And in First John, it says, those who are full of hate are full of what? If, you're, if you don't love your brother, then you're full of darkness. You have darkness, okay? You're walking in darkness. If you don't love your brother, you're walking in darkness. Now, this here, this illustration that the Pharisees have provided, (laughs) is a really good example of darkness. They have no love, no empathy, no compassion for this poor woman. Instead, they're trying to condemn her. And Jesus uses this background of darkness to shine light on this beautiful diamond of truth that he's going to put out now. So that's what jewelers do, right? They have a black velvet thing that put the diamond on it and shine the light on it so it really sparkles. So that's what Jesus is going to do here when he says in verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So another one of Jesus' great I am statements. As I just said, He's using the Pharisees as an example of darkness, of that walking in hate, walking in blindness. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. And Jesus is the light of the world, brings light to those who follow him. Light, love, freedom. If we are not saved, abiding in Jesus, we are not in the light, but rather are walking in darkness, as First John says. If you, I'm not going to go through First John now, because it takes too long. 
But if you want to go through that and just read it for yourselves, um, the first few, well, it's only five chapters, read it and, and just see what he, John is constantly going back to that point. If you're not loving your brother, you're walking in darkness. And the Pharisees were loveless. They didn't love. You don't see any sign of them loving anyone but themselves. And the other picture of light in the Bible relates to God's word. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's Psalm 119, 105. And then Psalm 43, verse 3. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. So Jesus is the word, the word of God, and it makes perfect sense that he is also the light which guides us. Now, a little um, analogy from yesterday when I was diving. The visibility wasn't that good, and we're going along the bottom, and you know we had to stick really close to each other. And you know I was abiding with continuing with my dive buddies because if I turned away from them for too long, they would drift out of sight, and I would have no idea where they were because literally you couldn't see more than probably maybe six meters. You go six, seven meters, then suddenly they just vanish into the opaque blue water. And, well, I did lose my dive buddies for a little while, just the last five minutes of the second dive, and I go, where am I? You know, because I was following them, and they were going to go back to the to the um, pickup point, and I'm thinking, okay, well, there's a reef over there, and the waves are crashing on that. I don't want to go that way. <laughs> um, I don't want to drift too far from the boat, because I didn't have anything to signal them. They won't see me. And so I thought, this is, a, and I was just thinking today, that's a real picture of darkness where you're lost and you're you've got no direction you got you don't know where you are and then there's no one around you that and there's no one for you to follow and uh but i was i was fine i, I kind of i know what to do um you don't have to learn those things when you dive and see so navigate and you find your way back and uh and, and it was all good but jesus has also given us instructions on how to find a way back we use the word of God to come back or repent of our sin when we drift away. And uh, we don't have to walk aimlessly. We can walk with Christ and we get back in line with Christ. We we get back and continue to walk with him. We continue to abide with him. So verse 13, The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. When the tabernacle, they put the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, the Shekinah glory dwelt between the cherubim above the mercy seat. And in Ezekiel, it talks about the Shekinah glory leaving the temple. It's a really sad story of the, the Shekinah glory leaving the temple and uh, because the people rejected him. But here he is, the glory come back. He says, I am the light of the world. The glory of God has returned in the person of Jesus Christ. And yet what do the Pharisees do? They question him, they reject him, and they will finally extinguish him. But not for long. So Jesus proclaimed that he was the light of the world, but the Pharisees couldn't see it. So when you can't see the light, what does it mean? Does it mean the light isn't there? Or do, Yeah, it means that you're blind. When you can't see the light, it doesn't mean the light isn't there. It just means that you're blind. Now, a seeing man doesn't need someone to prove the light. You just see it. So when God opens our hearts, takes the veil off our heart, then we can see the light. Verse 14. 
Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. So let's just go through that bit by bit, that paragraph or that, that section of speech by Jesus. Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. Why? Well, Jesus can't lie. And Jesus knows everything. Whereas the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they don't know everything. So Jesus' testimony about himself is true because he is from eternity. He knows where he came from and he knows where he's going. He knows the truth. And he can testify about himself because he judges righteously, not according to the flesh. And his testimony is supported by God the Father. My judgment is true, for I'm not alone. So he has the the testimony of God the Father in perfect agreement. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Jesus is saying, I do have two witnesses. It's me and the Father. And the Father, when did the Father bear witness? Well, Matthew 3.17, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's what the Father spoke on the day of baptism. Now, where is your Father? Now, you've got to get the, the mindset of these Pharisees. They are bitter. They are hateful. And where is your Father? This is a deeply cutting insult to Jesus because they didn't understand about the virgin birth. They refused to believe that. And the rumors are going around that it's not a miraculous conception, but an illicit conception. It's, you know, Mary, you know, she had Jesus before, or, you know, pregnant before she was married. And uh, I wonder who your father is, Jesus. So it's another ploy to try and upset him, to try and get him to be angry. They just, yeah, their attitude is terrible. And Jesus responds, you know neither me nor my father. So they thought they had some dirt on Jesus, but Jesus says, you don't know anything. You don't know what you're talking about. And very sadly, he says, you don't know the father either. We'll come back to that. And verse 20, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. We've talked about that in previous weeks. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Again, this is similar to something else he said um, in chapter 6 and 7. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Because he says, Where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So let's break that down a bit. I am going away, and where I go you cannot come. So where is he going? Heaven. He's going back to heaven to be with the Father. But because of the hatred against him. Now, the unbeliever, 
and I was talking to someone on the boat yesterday. They were not overtly expressing, I hate those Christians, but they said, you know, this particular person went to a, a Christian school and she said, that, oh, you know, all my friends from that school, they're you know, married with kids, you know, those who are Christians were married and they got kids and they're living that kind of life. But this person was living with their partner, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, and they would not submit to God's truth. So they had this um, hatred toward God. They had this rebellion in their heart against God. They cannot, this person could not follow or cannot follow Jesus into heaven because they don't want to. So if we follow Jesus on earth, we will follow him to heaven. It's that simple. If we express no desire to follow him on earth, then why would we think that we would follow him to heaven? Will he kill himself? This is another insult against Jesus. In Jewish teaching in their doctrine, the lowest levels of Hades were for those who were committed suicide. So in their traditions, they would say that those who commit suicide were hellbound. So now the Pharisees are trying to twist Jesus' words to imply that he will commit suicide and therefore be damned. Um, it says another phrase in there, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, what does it mean you will die in your sins? Well, Psalm 51 verse 5 tells us that we are born in sin. We are born guilty. We are born with a corrupt nature. That's what David says, I was born in my sin. In Psalm 51 verse 5. And if we hold on to our sin and it's not dealt with, then we will die in our sins. It's that simple. We sin because we're sinners. We're born sinners and that's why we sin. The old um, horse thief. When was a horse thief a horse thief? After he stole the horse or before? <laughs> well, it's before because he wouldn't have stolen the horse if he wasn't a horse thief. But if we have our sins dealt with now, if we're forgiven, then on this side of death, by trusting in whom Jesus is and what he did to save us, we can avoid dying in our sins. We can have Jesus pay for our sins and not have to do it ourselves, resulting in eternal separation from God. And it says, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So Jesus called them to believe what? What do they have to believe? What's one of the things that we have to believe to not die in our sins? Well, it says, if you do not believe that I am. I am is the name of God. Back in Exodus 3.14. The I am is used in this chapter a lot. It's a claim to deity. If you don't believe that Jesus is God, you will die in your sins. That's what Jesus is saying here. So one of the main issues of salvation and the main doctrine, doctrinal issue that separates true Christianity from the cults is who is Jesus? Is Jesus the great I am? Is he Jehovah, Yahweh? Is he God in the flesh? So it's not enough to believe that Jesus is a good guy, a great guru, or even the son of God, as some people say. So the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, the, the Moonies, the cults, and all those other people, they're all damned in their teachings because they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. And because they deny the deity of Jesus Christ, they can't be saved. That's what this verse is saying. I'll just read it again so it's not my words. If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. 
you remember back to Genesis 22 verse 8, here's, Isaac is speaking. Here's the fire and here's the wood, but where's the sacrifice? Isaac asked Abraham on Mount Moriah, which is Calvary. Abraham says, God shall provide himself a lamb. So Abraham didn't say God shall provide for himself a lamb. He said God will himself be the lamb. So God demonstrates his love by dying for us when we were sinners. God died for us. He didn't create some other creature. I'll create someone else, and then that creature that I've created can do all the hard work for me so I don't have to suffer. And that's basically what the cults and the other religions are saying. Those cults in that, they diminish what God has done for us. I mean, it's nice that God would create someone, if this was true, that and cause that person created being to suffer but no he didn't do that he took it our sin on himself personally so these next few verses verses 25 to 30 talk about Jesus dependence and obedience to the father then they said to him who are you now they're realizing that I am means God okay and they said to him who are you and Jesus said to them just what I have been saying to you from the beginning I have many things to say and judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. So, Jesus here is saying, I've already told you, I'm not going to say any more. Sorry. There's a quote here. It has been rightly said that the art of eloquence is knowing when not to speak. That's what Jesus does here. I only say the things the Father said, and I'm not saying anything more. Sorry. I'm not going to answer your question. So, who are you? Jesus has told them so many times, but they're blind. And it comes from a combination of willful confusion and contempt. Blindness, the hate toward him. I speak to the world those things which I heard from him, the Father. So Jesus emphasizes the point again that his words are from God the Father. Now, the implication here is that if the Pharisees have a hard time with Jesus, what is really happening is they're having a hard time with God the Father. And we're going to see that drawn out later, or next week, as we finish the chapter. So they did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father, God the Father. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am So the lifting up of the Son of Man speaks of the cross. So when you see me on the cross in perfect obedience to the Father, you're going to know that I am, declares Jesus. So what happened when he died on the cross? Well, the sky went dark, the earth shook, the graves opened, the veil was torn, and you think they might have realized that, oh, this guy might have been the Messiah? I think so. But some of them, of course, didn't because their blindness is spiritual blindness and even though it's obvious they still wouldn't see and that I do nothing of myself but as my father taught me I speak these things this should be something that we need to grab onto for ourselves I do nothing of myself but as my father taught me I speak these things we've talked about this before what we see the father do we do we join him in his work and he who sent me is with me the father has not left me alone another promise for us as well for I always do those things that please him. That's another thing that we should aim for. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. So the Father has not left me alone. There's a unity between the Father and the Son. 
And no matter what threats, accusations, curses, put-downs are put toward him, thrown at him, he still experiences unity with the Father. As we read in the psalm this morning, Psalm 109, we could be falsely accused, persecuted, going through trials. When we love people, they, they hate us in return. But the one thing that nobody can do to us is separate us from the love of God. And that's Romans eight twenty eight. Jesus' message of his unity with the Father was received by many there. They believed him. Why do you think they believed him? Why do you think that they believed that Jesus and the Father were together, were one, and that he had not left him alone? I would say that's because when he said, for I always do those things that please him, the people would have said, yep, that's true. So our witness is only as powerful as our walk. Does that make sense? Our witness is only as powerful as our walk. Jesus' witness was powerful and many people believed in him because what he said matched what he did. So when we witness, even people don't know us, our attitude still shines through. Are we condescending? Are we like, I'm saved, you're not, you need to be saved? Or, hey, guess what? You know, I found something and I want to share it with you. You know, I really love you and I'm concerned about you. I don't want you to go to hell. That If we have that attitude, then people will listen most of the time. So the Pharisees tried to cultivate an image of intimacy with God. They make these long prayers and all this kind of stuff, but the people knew they weren't. So the more we are the real deal, the more authority we will have when we talk to people. And if we don't practice what we preach, then we're hypocrites. Now the next couple of verses I'm going to finish with is talking about Jesus offering discipleship and freedom to those who believe in him. Now notice who chapter 8, verse 31 and 32 are addressed to. It says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, So this promise is a conditional promise that we must have first believed in him. If you abide or continue, make your home in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So the word disciple means disciplined one. Because it says that you are my disciples, you are my disciplined ones indeed. Are we disciplined? to continue to take heed to and make a higher priority to read the Word of God, to study it for ourselves. As we do, then Jesus will help us to comprehend it and to understand it. And as we choose to obey it, then we are free, really and truly free. And another aspect of this is, if you abide my word, you are my disciples indeed. Jesus is not trying to win a debate with these people. He's wanting to bring them for salvation and freedom from the power of sin. And the only way this can happen, the only way we can be free, is to abide in the Word of God. And the other thing is, talking about the deity of Jesus Christ, he says, if you abide in what word? It doesn't say, if you abide in the Scriptures, if you follow what the Scriptures say. No, he says, if you abide in my word. So who's the ultimate author of the Bible? Jesus is, yeah, God, and the Holy Spirit, and the Father. God is the author of the Bible, and we have to abide in his word. So when we abide in his word, continue in it, and we are his disciples, then we shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. 
Now, this is not just an academic thing. People can study the Bible and they can know how to break it down. You know, they know all the doctrines, like the people in, in the Church of Ephesus did in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. But it didn't help them because they didn't love God. And Jesus gives them a consequence of not obeying. He says, if you don't repent and come back to your first love, I'll take the lampstand away and you'll cease to be a church. Well, guess what? They're no longer a church. So just knowing what is true is different to doing something. In the Jewish mindset, to know something means you can actually do it. So, for example, you can't say, I know how to overcome sin unless you have actually overcome sin. There's no point in just going to Bible study and learning, oh, these are the verses, this is the process, this is what I need to believe, this is what I need to do. But if you haven't done it, then you still don't know it. It's an experiential thing. God wants us to experience being set free, not just to know the Bible says it can happen, but to experience it. And I quote here, There is nothing like the freedom we can have in Jesus. No money can buy it, no status can obtain it, no works can earn it, and nothing can match it. And tragically, how few Christians really walk in it. It can never be found except by abiding in God's word and being Jesus' disciple. So just quickly, I want to just talk about what does being set free look like? Well, let's go back to David. David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband. David was sitting in his palace when Nathan the prophet comes along and says, There's a poor man who lives next door to a wealthy man. The wealthy man threw a party and needed a lamb to serve his guests. Instead of taking one from his own flock, the wealthy man went to his neighbor's house and took his only pet sheep, the family pet, the lamb. What? said David, enraged. That man shall surely die. That's what he said in Second Samuel 12.5. Is the death sentence the right thing to do for someone who took a lamb? <laughs> not quite, all right? And that's why it always is with us when we sin. You see, the proper thing that should have happened there was you should have restored the lamb plus another four, I think. If you steal a lamb, you restore four or fivefold. But it's not the death penalty. But indignation and harsh judgment are always the result of or the failure of sinners to see their own sin. Now, it's pride. Pride distorts our view of ourselves. Proverbs 20, verse 6, Most men will proclaim each his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? So during this time of his life, David is, when he's unrepentant, this year when he's unrepentant, he's proclaiming his own goodness, despite being an unrepentant murderer and adulterer and all-around schemer. <laughs> he's proud. Okay, His pride is blinding him to his true condition. Yet we know from Psalm 38 that he is also suffering greatly. And then God says, Nathan the prophet, to rebuke him, David humbled himself and repented. He saw himself as God saw him, and he saw sin as God saw the sin. And last week we saw how humility is required for repentance and a victorious and meaningful life, because without humility, a realistic view of ourselves, we will not live in dependence upon God, because if we don't see ourselves as weak, then we won't be relying on God. So what is humility? Well, I would say it's nothing more than an accurate view or understanding of ourselves. That's all it is. It's just seeing ourselves for who we are. Weak and um, unable to do anything except that God works through us. Without me, you can do nothing. Now, what about repentance? Well, one way I, I say repentance is 
Repentance is nothing more than humbly seeing our sin for what it is in God's eyes, accepting our responsibility for the choices we make, and then choosing to change direction. So when we have a lack of humility or brokenness, it affects the way we treat others. And I just want to finish on this because the Pharisees were very religious, but they were they treated people like dirt. And we can be the same sometimes. So verse 31 and verse 32, we'll just read them again. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So we need to be humble. This is showing us that our need for humility. And it's a pride of the Pharisees that kept them from accepting Jesus. And that's why Jesus didn't speak to them. He speaks to those who are humble, which he talked about previously. And do you realize that when you see a sin in someone else and you're struggling with that same sin, then you will lash out at that person and criticize that person because that's the sin that you're struggling with too. But instead of saying, hey, look, you know, I'm really, I understand, I empathize with you. You know, a human nature, if we're not welcoming the Lord, abiding in him at that time, we will lash out that person and condemn them. And that's what these Pharisees are doing. Now, can you open your Bibles to James chapter 4? I just want to show how pride affects us, how pride can keep us from being the people that God wants us to be. We can be a sin-sniffing, fault-finding, keyhole-peeping person like the Pharisees were and not understanding the grace and goodness of Jesus. But if we realize we're a sinner saved by grace, we'll see how far we have come from, how far we have fallen, and what we should be in the Lord. And we'll lose our interest in throwing rocks. Once we understand how God sees us and who we really are, we'll lose our interest in throwing rocks because we won't want to anymore. We'll be thankful for receiving God's forgiveness. Now, in the New King James, the start of this section, or the title for it is Pride Promotes Strife. Now, it's not in the Bible, it's just someone's opinion of it, of what this is talking about, but it's interesting. Pride promotes strife. So let's read from verse 1 in chapter 4 of James. It says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and cover and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses. Interesting use of words there. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud. Now, who's the proud? Well, it just described that being proud, what it looks like in verses 1 to 4. But gives grace to the humble. So God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord 
and he will lift you up. Now, the next verse says, do not speak evil of one another. And that's right after this, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Submit to the Lord. This whole thing is about prideful attitude. And what does it cause us to do in verse 11? Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges, condemns his brother, speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? So just like David judged or condemned the rich man who stole the lamb from the poor man, so we can do the same. Sometimes we'll just be in our heads, but it's just as bad because our attitude toward the other person will reflect the way we see them as being condemned or thinking that we are better or more deserving than them. And as a result, we don't treat them with respect that they deserve as a child of God. In contrast, the Christian with a humble heart will not think of himself more highly than he ought. Philippians 2.3 Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. So that's the difference, the contrast between seeing people um, with a, hum- a humble attitude. We think of them as being better than ourselves, whereas as a prideful attitude where we think, see people as being lesser than ourselves and we're more likely to condemn them and, and criticize them and be unloving towards them. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for the um, the picture that we see here with the Pharisees and the nasty, nasty attitude toward sinners. You know, the woman caught in adultery, Lord, they set her up, they bring her out there and shame her completely. And Lord, they hate Jesus, they hate the common people, they just so proud, they're so blind. But Lord, even as Christians, if we allow sin to harden our hearts, then we can treat each other the same way. Lord, I just pray that you keep us humble, humble our hearts, as it says in James there, to pray that we can meditate on those verses. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift us up. So, Father, I pray that we can be humble in your sight and that you will lift us up and we can treat each other with love and compassion. And, Lord, instead of condemning, we'll be encouraging and drawing alongside and just building each other up instead of tearing each other down. And so I thank you for the love that we find in you and the unity that we have in you. And we just pray, Lord, that you'll teach us through these scriptures. Amen.